You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lupiton. This week on the show, a very special conversation with the founder and sonic visionary behind one of America's most beloved and underrated roots and noise rock groups, Granddaddy, who went from humble beginnings as a power trio of skateboarding friends in Modesto, California in the early 90s, to headlining rock festivals like Glastonbury at the turn of the millennium. After disappearing into the Montana wilderness, its soft-spoken multi-instrumentalist mountain-crazy collector craftsman leader kept a devoted fan base nearly three decades later by creating oddly titled solo records of cinematically rich soundscapes that encircled lyrically whacked anti-heroes telling poetic campfire-ready short story songs that make us worried kids feel seen and heard and yet always keep us guessing. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Lytle. As you can tell by me freaking out, this interview was a thrill for me. Jason rarely plays solo, and I just happened to catch him before his one appearance in L.A. at a tucked-away studio where he told me there was a lovely piano waiting for us that he had to play. Every music nerd like me has that one band that they feel like they have to be the ambassador for, that they will go to the ends of the earth to tell people about, even if they don't care or want to hear the music. For me, it's Granddaddy. It was like finding your own piece of gold on your own mountaintop. A lot of the music that you grow up with, that you fall in love with at first, you know, maybe it was the Beatles, it was the stuff your parents gave you. Or, on the other side of it, you love music that your parents hate. The Offspring, for me, or Green Day. And yet, Granddaddy was somewhere in between. It was unlike anything I'd ever heard. The heroes in Jason's songs aren't like the sports heroes or the gods that we see on television. We all have our heroes. Maybe it starts with our dads when we're really young. And, you know, when I was a kid, it was the local sports stars in Chicago that I prayed to literally on bended knee in the bathroom before bed. Like Frank the Big Hurt Thomas with his prodigious home runs and his impeccable on-base percentage. And, of course, the once-and-future greatest Michael Jeffrey Jordan, who for six glorious Junes brought our city the sweet taste of victory and ticker tape parades that made the struggle worth it and put a feeling in your young heart that at least for another year, we were invincible. And I would pray after another championship run, after another taste of dad's champagne and the tearful look in his eye, I would pray, please, Mr. Jordan, please let us do it again next year. And he would deliver until he couldn't anymore and everything changed. When I was 14, our team stopped winning, and they've never won since. And you know what? I looked at my parents, and I realized maybe they're not happy, and maybe they won't stay together. And there was a kid in our class. He was the best-looking kid, the Michael Jordan of the eighth grade, and he died. Asthma attack at the mall. And as we stood over his silver face at the funeral home, I realized it could have been me. Life is fragile. It could end at any moment. And the next thing you know, you're on your own in a new town with new people, and it's confusing, and it's overwhelming. And then your freshman year roommate hands you a burned copy of a record that you must listen to in a grocery store parking lot in Michigan, and it smells like new friendship and cheap vodka, and you put it in your sob hatchback, and it says in Sharpie marker, someday, 
S-U-M-D-A-Y. And somehow, in its synthy, jangly, crunchy cacophony, it speaks to you. It speaks of lonely people searching for something and waiting for someone who may never arrive. And it feels like real life is beginning for you right there in that parking lot. And you know what? Maybe real life isn't about the big victories. It's about all the small victories along the way. And sometimes just getting out of your own darkness for a second and looking at how beautiful the world is around you, watching the sunset over the beach like I did a couple hours ago, that's the victory of life. Bust the lock off the front door. Once you're outside, you won't want to hide anymore. That chorus of that opening track of Someday gets me every time, almost 20 years later. Before I bust out crying here on the mic, I would like to tell you, as usual, stick around to the end of the episode. Jason Lytle plays a beautiful solo piano rendition of one of my all-time favorite songs. It's called The Saddest Vacant Lot in All the World. And, uh, man, it was a true honor just uh, sitting with Jason and learning about some of the songs that have become the soundtrack to my life. And if you need a soundtrack to your life right now, I urge you to check out my band Dust Bowl Revival's new single, Runaway. It's coming out Friday. We're really excited about it. It is a story about seeing the world and realizing that maybe the home that you're looking for is all around you. So, DustBowlRevival.com. And ladies and gentlemen, here he is now, the wonderful Jason Lytle. I am Jason Lytle, and I play music, I record and produce albums, and uh, I do all kinds of other stuff, too. And uh, for those of you who maybe don't know Jason as a solo artist, um, I discovered him like many nerds in uh, the wonderful... Uh, God, what do you even call Granddaddy? Like a psychedelic Roots Electronica band? Uh, it was a question that I dreaded on a regular basis for many <laughs> years. No, 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 no. But I mean, I just, I ended up just sort of going with what, what the press ended up coming up with. There was like, I don't know, there was like melancholic space rock, you know, yeah. just like psychedelic bearded, just like nonsense. There was all kinds of annoying descriptives. But I think uh, Spotify was saying cinemascope indie rock. Mm. That, does that even make sense? I don't know. I, that's fine. I, 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 um, yeah. I think on the way here, uh, driving, you know, towards uh, the mountains with the sun opening up over the, yeah. uh, you know, it's such such a beautiful sight. Whenever L.A. has been washed clean, you know, <laughs> and uh, I felt like some of these songs that we're playing could have been in a David Lynch soundtrack, you know. Especially you have this signature synth kind of was it a flange or kind of this like you know this sort of deep guttural uh thing that ties a lot of your records together yeah i mean i i like movement i like i like uh i'm not not really a huge fan of crazy panning but i do like it i like kind of slow movement in, right in sounds and it's like I remember over the years making all those records, it was really important for me to, um, if I ever kind of got stuck or I needed focus or direction, I would try to fall back on emulating the sound of nature. Not right. not that I was trying to make like new age, you know, 
recordings or whatever, but I just, if something can remind me of like, you know, clouds or mm. waterfalls or like birds or like insects, mm-hmm. then it's kind of a fun little task to sort of dream up those sounds and try to make them. Yeah. And the, I mean, the record I fell in love with, uh, which I was telling you earlier, like a total nerd someday, which is, I think, one of the greatest records in the last 40 years. Wow. Is this sort of uh, concept record, at least for me, of this group of people getting into nature, you know, who are stuck in an office normally or something. Or yeah, like, well, there's that one song specifically, that group who couldn't say. It's uh, yeah. It's very much... Um, it, it Yeah, it's definitely a theme that runs through my life, so it's like it's a lot easier for me to, in terms of making music that means a lot to me, that's going to have a pretty good shelf life for me right so i can stay invested in it for years to come and it's not going to date itself it's like i have to make this stuff real it's got to be an extension of me as a matter of fact um yeah i don't know i think uh pretty confident to say that anybody who wants to get a pretty good idea of like what my deal is like it's all you have to do is like listen to my lyrics and it's like Mm. I try to steer clear of too many cliches and it's, right. it just means a lot for me to like really have it come from the heart, which sounds kind of like a no brainer, but, but it's uh well, there's an earnestness to, to a lot of your stuff that has this, uh, warmth, even when you have some big grunge guitars and this sort of punk rock aesthetic in yeah. a lot of your stuff, but there's this almost conspiratorial whispered mist <laughs> to your singing or you're sort of telling only me what's yeah. happening you know wow. and and there's the song going back to someday the kids who lost the go and the go for it yeah i just like have this image of me and my roommate in our dorm in college in michigan blasting that at full volume and it's like everyone in in that whole university is there because their parents and their grandparents believe that they're going to be the special ones, <laughs> right? Yeah. And they're paying so much money for you to have this glorious future. And all these kids, not all of them, but everyone's trying to do the opposite of that almost. Like yeah. we're trying to rebel against being told that we have to be the best at everything. We lost the go and the go for it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, something to push against isn't a bad thing. And it's also, I can imagine a lot of those kids end up in those situations where it's just like, it's not always a straight line, you know, ending up where you're supposed to end up. And, uh, you know, maybe you have to go to some college and have all this weird pressure imposed upon you to realize that, like, this actually isn't for me and this is totally wrong and I'm just going to end up doing something else. Or maybe it sticks and it's great and and you lucked out. Did you go to college? I did not. I I dabbled. I kind of put all my eggs in the basket of I was really involved in skateboarding in my my later teens and my early 20s and I was kind of making my way up the ranks. And you're from New- Modesto, right? That's where granddaddy and all that yeah, kind of formed. Yeah, Modesto, California, which is 
a weird place and a whole other, a whole other. Uh, it's not one of the fancy like glory spots of of California that people like dream about. No, movies. no, it's where you don't go to visit when you come to California. <laughs> Is it, it usually people drive through it to get to Yosemite? That's like, you know, maybe stop and yeah, you know, get fill up on gas, like Lone Pine, buy some beef jerky, and, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it's a. Uh, it was in it. It was an interesting place, though. To I mean, because we sort of resisted the temptation to kind of around the time when the, you know all the stuff started happening with the band. It was like, all right, now what? And you're obviously gonna like move here or go do that. And it almost because people sort of expected that, or it almost seemed like the next move to make. It was almost like this perverse experiment to see what would happen if we just stayed there yeah i I think i had a my perspective was at that point developed enough between how kind of how modesto stacked up to other places and i think i thought it would be really fascinating to just stay there and let the band evolve in its own weird way Mm. rather than get caught up with this sort of you know I don't just uproot and just all the all the chaos and unrest that comes with like trying to get to know a new area and then you got to try to fit in with like a new scene and I was just like we have our own thing going on here let's just like hunker down you know pay cheap rent and just keep developing like this weird um and and in a weird twist of fate like everything kind of took off for us in the UK and in Europe before mm. and they were so freaked out by us like they'd never seen anything like you know we're just you know, we look like a bunch of farmers basically and we're yeah. playing all this like weird spacey yeah i mean we basically look like what most of the people um in our area like it wasn't like this gimmicky kind of thing it's right. just like what people look like where we came from and uh and i think just that confusion factor was just added to like how intrigued people in the uk and europe were. well even us. right now you could you could be like both a professor of literature or like on a tractor in Modesto right now. You know, got the flannel, you got the trucker hat. You know, I mean, you could you could still be back there. Yeah, I can't I can't shake it. It's just uh, how did they discover your stuff in the UK before anyone else? That's a great question. Yeah, going back to like, there's no real straight line. It was um, we just ended up getting a small a small deal with uh like somehow somebody found out about us. Is this before Under the Western Freeway? It was around the time. No, it was a little bit after. And then, so that ended up being the first thing we released. They, Because it got like this really small, sort of sad little release over here. And then once, once we hooked up, it was a label called Big Cat. And the whole reason why we just like, we lost our shit was because pavement was on big cat in the yeah. uk and it's like can't do any wrong it's like you're, we're gonna be on the label that pavement was on and a little did we know like pavement was in the was in the throes of like falling out with that label but like yeah, yeah. all the label people kept that from us it's yeah like, yeah we're tight with those guys man it's yeah. awesome yeah they come you can out, hang out with them you know exactly yeah we're probably kind of thinking that it's going to be the case as well but that went on to and this really other interesting accidental twist of fate big cat got bought up by a label called called v2 records and v2 was like this big you know there was like a big pot of money there so we got 
kind of uh, absorbed into that and ended up benefiting big time from that. There was all kinds of money and great promotion and the, the team. I mean, the label people were super awesome. And I was literally home in Modesto buying tons of gear with like with um, label money and just like nobody was fucking with me. It was just like nobody was checking in. Nobody cared. They're just like, all right, do your weird thing. Just keep yeah. doing that weird thing, whatever it is you're doing out there. And well, the late 90s was probably with the British like accent. There was the like, very end of the sort of traditional label system. We got, we got, we got like the very tail end of that. Before and Napster and all that stuff. I, I have a theory that takes it even further though too because so not only did we get, did we sneak in that, you know, just, we just got the very tail end of when there was still money and, and promotion and resources with like record labels. But I think they knew that it was all going away. So they were just like spending like, like, you yeah. know, it's like the expense accounts were like off the charts. Right. You know, we we're just flying everywhere, just, you know, staying in super nice hotels and just like, you know, the, you know, video budgets were like insane. Yeah. And, like, I don't even want to talk about the amount of money that was spent on videos. Um, talk about it. <laughs> it was like, it was insane. It was just like, it well, was surreal. It's like you can't even e- make the equation anymore. Well, it used to be like, you know, music videos and advertising, like, you know, Burger King commercials were like in the same type director pool, right? Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, I worked for about five years here in L.A. in advertising, and, and it's like, even now, probably the difference between... 10 years ago when I was doing that and now the budgets I think have shrunk for that too but mm-hmm. I mean I just remember looking at these sheets and being like someone is paying $600,000 for 30 seconds of this Burger King commercial so crazy <clears throat> and thank God because it's employing all of us you know weirdos but also why yeah <laughs> you know yeah whereas and I can't get like a hundred bucks you know, at the bar when we played with our band, you know. <laughs> you know. Yep. And we're lucky now if we can get like, we're trying to be like, yeah, should we spend like three grand for our video in January? How about maybe five? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah, it's it's absurd. How do you promote yourself now? Besides obviously Instagram and all that stuff. But, you know, you're not a young kid, you know, flaunting a pop record. It's like... What is the best way to, of getting aficionados to hear your stuff now? I don't know, man. This is, I mean, this is going to sound really, I don't know how this is going to sound, but it's like, I seriously don't give a shit. <laughs> it starts it's off with, that way, it starts off with me not giving a shit. <laughs> I've, I've also been really fortunate to, I, I amassed enough of a fan base, I think, with Granddaddy. And stayed busy enough, and and I think I retained a certain amount of credibility mm-hmm. to where I have people search me out. Right. You know, I help other people make records. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough and maybe even wise enough as well to almost like every note of Granddaddy's records, uh, I, I basically recorded everything, recorded and engineered everything myself too. So I was learning... Mm about recording at the same time that like simultaneously as I was learning how to write songs and learn how to tune instruments and, Mm. you know, any, all the number of tasks that go along with making records and, and, you know, piecing together semi-elaborate studios. Mm -hmm. And that kind of became my, my, my craft. Right. That I was 
doing at the same time of just being like a, you know, just like a, you know, a, a just a kooky musician. I was also being a very serious sort of, you know, constantly studying, like very fascinated with, you know, audio and, and gear and all that stuff. Um, Who have you produced? Um... I, it's mostly smaller projects, but I mean, I did a Band of Horses record. I did a, I just finished like a really, really cool record of this Irish uh, folk pop guy, goes by the name of Melogian. And uh, I don't know, I was like just a lot of little one-off things, you know? And I get asked to play on other people's records and be part of people's records. I do film stuff. I do, um, I still get, you know, licensing stuff still. I have the same manager that I've had for the last 15 years. But what ends up happening, you know, I did like, you know, like TV series, you know, played, you know, music for like a scene here or music for like an outro there. I'm working on like this Japanese documentary right now that's about these women volleyball players in the 60s who were from a sweatshop who ended up becoming like the Olympic world champions. It was like this wow. really cool. Um, So all kinds of weird stuff. What, what, what has ended up happening to my benefit is a lot of these granddaddy fans have grown up and gone on to do all these things and they know that I still work on music. So I'll get contacted, you know, it's mm. like maybe in the back of their mind, they was like, man, it'd be cool to like one day, you know, work with this guy who was like, who I loved his music at that point. And they find out I still do this and I still kind of, there's still similarities with the music that I make now and the music I made then. So. Yeah, and what is the so this this release that you did uh, this year, the Arthur King presents. Yeah. What is it? Nylon and Nylon and Juno. Yeah, in one word. Yeah. And it's instrumentals, mostly, yeah. right? Yeah, it's all. Um, it was they did a they did a series of of albums within the label Dangerbird Records. They did a. Uh, the theme was pretty much getting people who do other music, who are known for other things, and kind right. of getting them out of their comfort zone and, and having them, you know. So my theme that I came up with was I was just, I'm going to make this what I hope to be an interesting sounding record with only a Juno 60 and an nylon string guitar. <clears throat> and it was only because I'd moved into this new apartment and I had everything kind of organized and you know on shelves and things. this is in northern california yeah but the other there's two pieces of gear left that were just sort of sitting there doing yeah. and they were and they were sitting there next to each other for months and i just kind of became fixated with how good they looked next to each other juno's a synth yeah it's a it's a roland juno uh 60 is a uh it's a fairly well-known like old classic analog synthesizer right that um that's capable of like making these really dense, you know, very um, emotive, uh, lush sounding. But it, it can also it's also like a weird beast too. You can also get all kinds of strange. So I was just like, you know, can I make an album that's like thirty to forty minutes long that's actually engaging enough to listen to with only these two instruments? Yeah, there's a track on there. Uh, Don't want to be there for all that stuff, <laughs> right? Um, that really, I think, like symbolizes what I love about your uh, body of work is this sort of imperfect beauty that comes from allowing the sort of nooks and crannies and, and scuffs and, and stops and starts to be showcased as part of the music and not be glossed over. You know, there's this, you know, 
classical guitar kind of stopping and starting where you're almost like soloing like Spanish style uh-huh. almost. And then you're like not quite getting it right. And then like all of a sudden there's this beautiful run. You're like thinking about it, you know, and then, you know, you have this, <laughs> you have the organ going in the background, but it, it's beautiful, you know, and it reminds me of, uh, you know, some of this stuff at the end of this episode, you'll hear the saddest vacant lot in all the world where you have this sort of focus on imperfect sort of broken people always sort of waiting on each other, you know, or like searching each other out and never finding the answer. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I don't, I don't know when and how I got fascinated by that. Cause I grew up listening to very, you know, I love very produced and very meticulously constructed albums. It's like, it's fascinating for me to listen to that stuff. So there might be a little bit of, you know, just like play to your strengths and, and uh, where it's, you know, I'm never going to be a virtuoso, but I think I do have the ability to really feel things and I can kind of dictate in what direction things need to go based on feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, there's something that's way more appealing to me about music emulating like reality. Mm. And our lives are not perfect. You know, Mm -hmm. we wake up and we have any number of moods within a day. Mm -hmm. You know, we're stubbing our toes and we're like, you know, there are fender benders and there's just like, you know, people are late for, you know, engagements. And there's just any number of like, you know, the the madness that can happen from, you know, sun up to sundown. It's almost like that's what a song should be. But like I said, I have appreciation for, for, for both worlds. Um, but there's almost something, you know, allowing it just to be messy and stay pretty. Uh, and it's usually a balancing game, too. You know, I can never go too messy. And I, and I, and I start getting a little squeamish if, I, if it gets too, like, too syrupy. And so it's, it's somewhere in the middle is, like, is my comfort zone. Well, I think, you know, I've been learning, you know, with a producer involved, uh, sometimes you need that to have someone else tell you like let this imperfection be oh it's tricky man i'm a i mean and i've only produced myself over the years so it's a weird weird having to uh step out of i mean it's hard work having to step out of that there's almost like this weird role-playing game that you have to do you literally have to pretend like you're somebody like i'll step away i've been working on a mix for a while and i'll just like i'll go do something wash dishes and then come back and just like say, I pretend like I'm a new person. I'm like, oh, all right, let's check this out. Who's yeah. a, who, who are we listening to right now? Anyways, yeah. like you literally have to role play and pretend like you're somebody else in order to get out of your own head. And um, and that's where, you know, doing car mixes and, and just changing the environment helps a lot. Where do songs come <laughs> from? Like, do they start in lyric form? Are you a notebook writer? Are you a notes app iPhone writer? No, I I uh, I tried. Um, I've maybe used a few uh, notes app, but um, for the most part, <clears throat> I've gotten most of my. Uh, I have a really thick journal that's about ten by ten, mm-hmm. but it's within its pages. There's like hundreds to probably thousands of scotch taped mm. swatches of post its. Mm-hmm. napkins um mm-hmm. uh just you know pieces of you know 
you know, the, you know, the little tablets you get from hotels, yep. lots of those, um, you know, coasters from bars. It's mm-hmm. like, you name it. Like if you can write on it and I found a pin, which is usually always a pin in my left pocket. And it's, it's probably about a dozen years now. And this is, this is like the good stuff too. I have old notebooks that just never got used. And it's just like, I can't even think about them anymore. But, um, so essentially what I'm doing is I'm trying to make the music that has a certain, that has a certain feel or a certain vibe. And then I, then I go to that notebook and I just start kind of matching them, like Mm. seeing, you know, just like, just kind of running through it and finding a, you know, if there's like a phrase and most of it is just like little phrases. It's like Mm. funny shit that I heard, Mm -hmm. you know, something that's clever, something that's like, usually it's like kind of sad and hilarious Mm -hmm. stuff, but it's, uh, and if I'm lucky, then just like, even like one or two phrases will just get me off and running. And then, uh, and then I just sort of start improvising from that point. Yeah. I think if there's another maybe songwriter, uh, that reminds me of you a bit is John Prine in some oh, form, God. you know, just this the sort of, of devastating, accurate portrayals of like human frailty, Ugh. you know, and yet like said with a smile in a way, you know, like where it's like, you know, yeah, so what are you going to do? Half a inch of water, <laughs> we're all going to drown, <laughs> you know, this, no. this sort of like, man, I'm honored you would make that connection because like, I love him so much. It's like, and I no, I agree with you. I mean, that's what I get out of, uh, you know, just like the simplest crushing, um, but like poignant, I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> Said so simply and like, ouch. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a song off of uh, Department of Disappearance, which is directed from 2012, I believe. Um, the Last Problem of the Alps. Mm. Sort of, again, the, <clears throat> the the dynamic between focusing on this like, minutiae, you know, I gotta cut more wood, I gotta do my chores, then I'm gonna wait for you forevermore. Yeah. If this, and then it sort of like opens up into this huge, just crushing wait for someone that's never gonna come. Again, sort of like the saddest faking lot in all the world, you know. Yeah. Tell me a little about that song, if you can remember it. That was heavy. I was a I decided to, I was living in Montana at the time and I fully embraced, I love the mountains. I love to climb. I love, I love spending lots of time in the mountains, like in an inordinate amount of time in the mountains, more so than any other musician I know, that's for sure. Um, I have all the gear, you know, like winter mountaineering, you know, cross country skiing, alpine skiing, um, hiking, camping, backpacking, all that good stuff. That's actually why I ended up in Montana. Because I wanted to finally live close enough to all that stuff to where it wasn't like you know taking taking like a huge trip and like I was just like all that stuff would be right out my back door. Were you up in Bozeman? <clears throat> yeah, it's a great town. No, I love it. So yeah, I just I I remember I was just gonna own like I've always kind of made reference to nature and mountains a little bit and but I was just like I'm like I'm just gonna like really slather on the mountain theme thing like pretty pretty thick on this record but I was I was at the front end of a marriage that was falling apart like it was getting really it was becoming clear that things were going south and so that ended up being my kind of like that ended up being this ever-present 
metaphor that kept rearing its head was just like, in my mind, it's like she's stuck. She's up there in a blizzard, and I can't get to her. And I'm like, and I'm just down there waiting and worrying and kind of hoping the weather's going to break or just like I can finally. That was just my way of making sense with like the fact that we just were not in contact anymore. We were not reachable. Like we couldn't reach each other anymore, but I could, I could always see her still, mm. you know, it's, and, uh, so there was, that, there was, there was another song, the last problem of the Alps and, uh, Willow Wand. I've referred to that as well on that same record. And, um, end of, end of marriage theme. Yeah. With the, and it's, and it's all, it's all blizzard. It's all like yeah. wrapped up in a blizzard and just like, you can hear their voice faintly in the distance and um, but you just can't get to each other. Now I cut the wood, I fill the stove, I eat my soup, I write my notes, recalling the last problem of the Alps. Recalling our last problem of the Alps. So that's what that's all about. <laughs> How long were you married? We were together. We were married for a couple of years, but we were actually together for about twelve years mm. in total. So, and then it 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 fully fell apart, and then we were just like bye bye. Around, uh, we ended up moving to Portland, and that was just like that was the absolute end of it. And she took off. <clears throat> Luckily, we're we're good friends now. It's mm. like it ended up. It took a while to get to that point, but everything was amicable and and we're good pals. And yeah, at the at the peak of it is when I ended up making Last Place, which is like this mm-hmm. uh, this most recent Granddaddy album. I've had this realization just in the last year with some people close to me experiencing their marriages ending. Um, that a lot of us, you're in your late twenties, early thirties, and you're like, oh, we're all of these friends who are couples and kind of are growing up together, everyone's going to stay together. You know, like we're, we're, it's like a thing, you know? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait. Yeah, your parents were also like 30 and 35, you know, and you saw like half of your friend's parents breaking up, you know? And, oh, yeah, that's us now. Yeah, yeah. You know? And we don't, in our generation... And it's it's it, when it's once it starts happening too, it's like so startling because you know you have all those friends and you only refer to them as like, it's like, Jim and Tammy, yeah, or like or like Mike and Sarah. It's yeah. like it's like it's yeah. never like singularly. It's like yeah. oh Mike and Tara, Mike and Tara, Jim and Tammy, and it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh Jim and Tammy are breaking up. It's like no, it can't happen. I say their name together all the time. It's like that's like, that's not, it's not possible. Anyway, sorry I cut you off. <laughs> but it feels like the idea that. Growing up, it be, it being an adult is sort of accepting, again, like your own and your friend's frailty, you know, that nothing is forever and that you you can move on, yeah. you know. And, the, you know, for me, it feels like there's life, like, before I met my wife and then there's, like, oh, there's this part of it now, mm. you know. And then the idea of, like, 
for some reason our life changing or ending is like impossible right now. <laughs> but of course it's like very possible. Yeah. You know? No, I'm I'm almost slightly relieved when you know, obviously I want everyone to be happy and like everyone's marriages to stay together and like yeah. nobody to break up, but every now and then it's just like, yeah, it's real and it's okay. I I kind of take I try to spread that message too. I'm I'm super proud of the fact that I'm still friends with my ex-wife. And it wasn't always like that. There was no guarantees it was going to stay like that. But it's like, it's it's almost just like, I kind of got the best of both worlds at this point. You know, we shared all the stuff and we went through all these things together. And then it ended, you know, and it could have been a complete disaster. But it didn't. And like, we're civil. And I'm like, man, I got to have this life with this person. And now I get to like step away from it and kind of see it all, you know, from multiple sp- perspectives do you consider yourself a solitary person on many levels obviously your art is very much driven by your own vision you know you produce yourself you write the songs you play the instruments and it's almost like that probably spills into your personal life too you know yeah but it's that's actually something i'm struggling with and it's something i'm trying to come to terms with because i I have I I think it's unhealthy and I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to figure it out. It's an exercise for me to remind myself to stay social mm-hmm. and to stay connected. Um even right now where I live, it's like I don't have a community of people that I it's really easy for me to kind of go into a shell and mm-hmm. and um I have this joke which is kind of funny referring back to that nylon and juno record um <clears throat> when i was making that i was like spending so much time and it was all like instrumental music and i was just in headphones and like weeks you know by myself and like not talking to anybody and mm-hmm. i was just kind of starting to lose it so i would force myself to there's a trader joe's that was walkable from my house and i started calling it therapy joe's because <laughs> i was just like the only reason i was going there was just to be around people and it's so like ruthlessly cheerful at Trader Joe's. (laughs) No, yeah, yeah. And I realized how healthy it was for me just to make those little trips in there. And just even if it was just like a, you know, oh, excuse me, hi, and a smile and like, and a tiny conversation with the checkout register person, you know, I realized I needed that. (laughs) Like it was kind of crucial because it's sort of like this dangerous default for me to kind of just go way too inward and things start getting a little squirrely after a while. And um, and I also, I still have memories of, I think some of my most productive periods of my life is when I worked and I also had a, like a functioning relationship where it was kind of like, yeah, I had a good balance going on. And I kind of want that again. Mm-hmm. Um, but currently that's not the situation. So I, I have to be careful. You know, there might be someone special tonight <laughs> who comes up to you at the Lodge Room well, that's always the in case. L.A. That hope is always there, right? <laughs> well, the, the song uh, Summer Here, Kids, off of your record under the Western Freeway, the granddaddy record that started to get attention, whatever, mm-hmm. um, that song almost could be like a pop radio hit of that day. You know, could have been... It sounds almost like a Weezer song with... 
unweezer-like things that could never have happened. Well, the production though is just terrible. So it's like, but it, it feels a, I, I, it feels like of its time. Yeah, like I, you have that. You have that kind of almost like the high. I don't give a shit if I'm singing in tune, rock and roll thing. <laughs> but then out of nowhere, it comes. The rug is pulled out, and you have this acoustic little nugget. Yeah, and you're saying. I'm not having a good time, yeah. right? And that's like, oh, right, that would not be on the radio. <laughs> you know, this is not uh He can't say point. that. Yeah. No, and it's like, oh, it seems like this sort of nihilistic punk rock anthem, and then you're like, oh, wait, something else is going on. You remember what brought upon that song? Oh, God, I have no idea. <laughs> it was like a billion years Nine ago. Nine million years ago. Yeah, no. <clears throat> Um, I don't know. I'd have to read the lyrics, but I mean, it's, <clears throat> it was definitely, uh, probably once again, just an extension of who I was and the way that I see things. And, and, uh, yeah. How did you collaborate with your bandmates in Granddaddy that is different from how you create stuff as a solo artist? Um, I had, I had had so much under my belt at that point of recording myself and like making, you know, I'd made a couple full-length albums at that point and just playing everything by myself. And uh, I was just like, I was so far ahead, kind of advanced in my own weird way that uh, I kind of just let them know. I was like, hey, all right, this is, I'm just going to make these songs and these recordings and then you know, I mean, I would check in. I used I used them as sounding boards a lot, you know, and I'd get like a lot of encouragement and stuff. But I think they also knew that my level of focus was just so honed in, mm-hmm. and I wasn't the greatest communicator. Mm-hmm. And I also worked really fast, like really well, kind of on my own. So there was the efficiency matter. And bassist Kevin Garcia and Aaron Birch, the drummer, were they the the sort of core throughout? Yeah, we were a three piece for for a number of years before um, before we kind of expanded to a five piece. And even that, you know, it was all. You know, I met Aaron, the drummer. At, he was he worked at a skate shop that I used to go to all the time. And, you know, buy stuff from, and I inherited Kevin with Aaron. And Kevin was also a really good skateboarder. All of us skateboarded to some degree in the band. And um, yeah, and everybody just sort of got added naturally and we just sort of carried on. And a big part of, I think, and they, so they knew the way that I operated. And we, I basically have these finished songs and then we'd just go through and learn the songs and rehearse them and stuff. And then we turn it into a live thing. The cool thing is that I always kind of saw the two entities, you know, there's like the recording world, which is sort of my zone. And then, you know, we ended up being like a halfway decent, you know, live band as well. And that was just like, that's where, you know, all of us together, that's where it really shined, you know, in a different way, you know, on the on the stage and the, you know, touring and stuff. And we worked really well together. Was there ever friction of them wanting more of a say in the creation of stuff? Yeah, I mean, there was, it was... To be honest, though, it was like, it was such a well-oiled program for a while there. And it wasn't until later on, like, um, 
But then there was like all these other cracks started kind of showing where it was just like, I kind of started going more inward mm-hmm. and I became even more and more protective of my work, mm-hmm. my, my library of work. And I think every now and then I would wonder if I should be more open to, you know, uh, collaborating or whatever. But it was just, I think, I mean, I think it was, I think I was struggling with my own stuff at that point. I was just like, it was the only thing I had to hold on to. Mm -hmm. I think it was the only, I was just like, it was my baby. And I wasn't ready to like, uh, let the reins go. And I think I'd go through little, little phases where I thought I should loosen up a little bit, but then I was, I just cared too much about it. And it was like, it was pretty clear that like the songs and the music and like all the themes, it was like my vision. Mm-hmm. And at some point I do think if you find something that's working, that's like a biggest part of the battle right there. If you just start, trying to change things for the sake of changing things that could end up being to the detriment of like, you know, it's, it's impossible to say, you mm-hmm. know, maybe the albums could have been 10 times better, but it's like, I wasn't willing to let go and change the, change the formula. All right. Since you probably don't remember the lyrics to Summer Here Kids, mm-hmm. you can now read them from the internet. Wow. Like, the poetry they are. The poetry that they are. Because I feel like song lyrics don't get, ever get appreciated as their own literary entity. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, oh yeah, it's the thing that you kind of listen to in the background before the guitar solo. You know? Give me oh, some- I'm Demivity. <laughs> I got to make, I love making up words. This is the, this is the combination of I'm dumb with ivity put at the end of it. Nice. I'm a picture of I'm Demivity. <laughs> right, start at the beginning. <laughs> oh, am I reading the lyrics? Yeah, we've got to read it like it's a poem. Okay, here we go. After she lets you glide around, finally hit the ground like a paper plane, take a trip, join me in the sun. But not really, though. I ain't having fun. Because <laughs> summer here, kids. And that was that threw off the British people. Like, like I, I think... Maybe we say that more often. Or, or no, Europeans didn't get like, it's like when you say I'm kidding, yeah, yeah, I'm kidding. It's like they thought it was like kids, like little kids, like children. It's like, and it's actually, some are here kids. Like some are here is kidding you. Um, Some are here kids. uh, All of them awful lies. Tourist info said I'd have a good time. (laughs) Do as I didn't do. Because I'm a picture of, of I'm Demivity. <laughs> Stay alone, put a record on, listen to the songs, keep yourself at home. Whew, sounds familiar. Because summer here kids, summer here totally lies. Tourist info said I'd have a good time. Summer here kids, all of them awful lies. Tourist info said I'd have a good time. I'm not having a good time. I'm not having a good time. I'm not having a good time. Repeat, repeat. Good time. 
See, I almost thought initially it was summer's here, kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the fun thing about pop music. You can. What was the music that you were listening to when you were a kid that you can first remember? It was all kind of, so my dad, my stepmom uh, got married, and my dad, when my stepmom, she actually used to work at a radio station, and the radio station went bust, so all the DJs kind of scrambled, and everyone brought home uh, records. They just, like, cleaned the place out. So when I inherited a stepmom, I also inherited, like, you know, 200 new records just to, like, kind of pour over and, and uh, decide what I liked. I'd already been... Like, I loved Kiss as a little kid. I was, like, a huge Kiss fan. But, And I think it even went further than, like, you know... It used to really bum me out when kids would say, Oh, I love Kiss, too. I like, I like that guy that breathes fire and he's got the long tongue. And I was like, I loved Ace Freely. Like, I loved... I like. I was already just, like, going... Finding, like, the deeper elements of of bands. You know, I like the lower-key guys rather than, like, the, you know, the crazy, fanatical ones. And then, uh... So when I was... But I remember the first song that I was ever completely blown away by um, that, that like music and storytelling combined could just like take things to another level was um, it was like the Beatles. And I remember listening to it with headphones. It was like Eleanor Rigby. Huh. And it blew my mind uh-huh. uh, of just like the whole like creating a picture in a little kid's mind. Uh-huh. I was just like, how how can you do that? <laughs> How's this possible? Um, I think it's like a parent's prerogative to play the Beatles like pretty much on loop as your child. Yeah. And, up. I, and and even like, you know, double whammy. I had a, I had a little, my mom took one of the uh, doors off of one of the bedrooms in our house and she made a little art table for me out of it. And I would sit there with headphones and just like draw and like listen to, because it was in the same room that the TV was on. So I wanted to listen to music so the only way to do it was like listening in headphones. And I just think that who knows what was going on, like feeding my spongy little brain at that point. But um, I have to say, going back to that um, that record collection that my stepmom brought home, I was able to discover on my own, and I think this was key, um, was ELO. And like ELO completely like, like it was like it was like game over. Like the productions and the uh, don't let me down. No, but even that, you know, and everybody's like, oh, I love that song. Don't let me. And I was like, <laughs> no, man. I was like straight into the deep cuts. Yeah. I was just like, but I mean, they're all great. But um, <laughs> well, but and he, I'm, I'm an ELO snob. Okay. No, but he, and he became uh, a producer, you know, in his own right. Yeah. You know? No, he's a he's an absolute genius. He's actually Jeff Lynne is probably my biggest musical hero, like without a doubt. When he started working with Petty, you know, and it's like, it's like his production was insane too. There was no other song sounded like that on FM radio at the time, and it was like it was just it was amazing. And he's like the coolest guy in the world too. He's have you met like, him? I have. Yes, I went to see him. He was doing warm up shows at um at the Fonda, and we snuck back to the um we snuck into the after show. And, um, the Fonda here in LA? Yeah. The Henry Fonda Theater. Well, first off, the show blew my mind. I was just like, like, I finally got it. I finally, like, I was like dancing, and which is totally yeah. not me. Dancing and singing and like smiling so hard, like my mouth 
It's just like mm. cramping up. Oh, it's like it's like your music, man. No, it was like, and the sound was. I mean, the sound was incredible, all of it. I could have ended the night right there and just been like, "This is the best live experience I've ever yeah. had." And then we ended up finagling our way into the after party, and I was standing there waiting for a drink, and he walks up beside me. He orders a scotch and water, and everybody's just like, ooh, it's Jeff, it's Jeff. He's got yeah. his sunglasses on. And I was like, all right, here it goes. It's go time. And I, like, turned to him. I put my one hand on his shoulder, shook his hand. I was just like, got to tell you, Jeff, it's like, I love you so much. I was like, you are the reason I make music. And he was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, good crowd tonight. He just sort of, like, brushed yeah. it off. Yeah. And I walked away, and I was shaking. I was, like, trembling. Oh, it was, like, so awesome. Like, people were, like, talking to me on the way out. I was like holding my drink. I was like, no, no, no. Yeah. I need this moment. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. walked, uh, walked off, you know, and like stood, you know, stood on the edge of this, you know, this handrail on the, you know, at the, the roof of this building. And I'm looking over this LA skyline. I'm just like, I just told Jeff Lynn. And yeah. I loved him. And he's my hero. I was like, this is, this is, this is the night. Is, yeah. Is, <laughs> it was a big deal for me. I would probably nine times out of ten, I would rather leave the people alone. Yeah, I'm just like I'm just gonna like I'm gonna keep on adoring you. <laughs> yeah, like I don't need there's a, like there's a selfish element to it where it's like all right, check that off my list. It's like it's kind of a yeah, keeping the keeping it all a mystery is not a bad thing either. If you could have coffee right now down the street at some coffee shop with anyone from history, who would it be? Mmm. Uh, I think it'd be cool to hang out with Beethoven mm. and not talk about music. <laughs> yeah. like... What else is going on with you, bro? <laughs> <laughs> no, he was, he's actually, yeah, I'm a big Beethoven fan. I feel like his music really speaks to me. But, um, and I guess he was a real, he, he was a real stubborn jerk, but like passionate and, uh, and, uh, had a lot to prove. You know, he wasn't a big fan of the upper classes and just like snobbery. And it was like mm-hmm. they had a problem with the fact that he was trying to he kind of basically invented romanticism and and romance, like the idea of like of, of classical music with like evoking like emotion. It was like and he was like he, he, he like the more over the top and the more kind of gooey and syrupy he could make it like he was just like. He was almost doing that just because he knew it was just gonna drive people nuts. And was like, it was like making beautiful music to like piss people off. I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> well, it's like, I mean, maybe it sounds simplistic, but guys like Mozart, Beethoven, like they're writing hooks, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like you can sing "Ode to Joy," yeah, or you know, note for note, as like a song that you know, like Lady Gaga or something. That's why, yeah. that's why that music was so powerful too. You know, it was just like, they didn't, they were, they didn't get to like rely on words. You know, it was like, it was like sorcery. Like the, the best composers were just like, they were like speaking to your soul and they weren't able to like cheat by doing it with words. It was just like, it had to be like, it had to like stir you up like on the inside just from like, you know, the notes that they were writing and combining and like the right keys and like the right rhythms and stuff. It was like, it's like, it's a crazy craft. It does feel, and maybe I have a, too much of a love for music of the late 60s, early 70s, but it feels like the Beethoven Mozart moment of, in our country was 
that time with the Beatles yeah. and the Stones and just like this sheer amount of earth-changing, universally beloved, amazing music in like 10 years, not even, yeah. you know? It just seems impossible that it would ever happen again like that. No, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of things colliding, um, you know, from technology to, you know, open-mindedness to just like having just enough rules and then also combining that with just like not giving a shit and just like not afraid to breaking the rules, not being afraid to break the rules and just, yeah, there was any number of, you know, just social change and stuff like that. Is there some artist that you think didn't get or isn't getting their due and has that level of genius? Mm, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, it's like I'm not that much of a music historian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm like, I feel really lucky to the point where I just like feel like I'm full of shit. Like I feel like I'm like still faking it. And still just like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm just like somehow p- still kind of pulling it off mm-hmm. after really kind of pulling it off. Um, and to know that there are so many people who, are s- who play their instrument way more, who have just like dedicated way. Like I, one of my secrets that I've said over the years, I try not to pick up my instrument that I, I only as much as I should. Like I'm, it's it's just as important for me to retain naivety or a wonder and mm-hmm. like the instrument that I'm playing. Like, you obviously want to be able to facilitate the ideas that you have and play as well as you can to kind of get ideas down. But I think my strength is like multi-tracking and sort of like mm-hmm. building things, mm-hmm. like um, like proficiency and and like and and a lot a lot of technical playing i love listening to it a lot of times and i'm fascinated by it but i can't do a lot of it i mean i'm not terrible but but i i just don't put the time in yeah because i kind of want to keep this relationship with my instruments where it's just like you know i won't play the piano for like a couple weeks and then i'll sit down i'm like whoa what's this thing yeah hi you know yeah it's like this reintroduction and there's like a little spark that happens again where i just don't and maybe it's just because i know that i just get tired of things and i'm just like i I just get bored too easily might be like this weird level of add or whatever but i'm just like i've always tried to keep so it's amazing to me that that's my strategy and i've somehow managed to still make this work but there are all these people out there that are brilliant and incredible musicians and they're still trying as hard as they can to like you know, get heard or like get noticed or whatever. And I don't take my situation for granted at all. But I also try to make sure that that I'm doing what I do like pretty well. Well, in the height of, you know, whatever attention granddaddy got, which was considerable for a few years there, you know, um, was there a moment where you almost were looking at yourself from above? Like I'm on the main stage in Glastonbury right now. How is this possible? Dude, the whole thing was like, most of it was insane to me. It was like, I couldn't make sense of a lot of it most of the time. Well, especially coming, you know, from a place like Modesto, right? No, it's not it like, was like, you know, that's a pretty unlikely My big joke was we, s- we snuck in through the back door uh-huh. and we just sort of hung in there as long as we could. Yeah. And 
just about the time it just looked like I was like, all right, we're getting figured out here. Some other amazing, weird thing would happen, and there'd be like this next level. And a lot of that was just from, you know, it's like obstinance and just like maybe once again naivety and just like, and just like decent work ethics. And just things kept happening. And so we would just like roll with it. We'd roll with like whatever next whatever next phase was, we just keep rolling with stuff. What do you think the biggest, <clears throat> craziest moment was where you were actually able to step back and be like, holy fuck. Uh, the glass, actually, now that you mentioned that, the Glastonbury was a, was a big one. It was like headlining the main stage. And we'd been there. Somebody made the mistake of actually allowing us to show up at the festival like three days beforehand. So we were just wiped out. We were like, man, it was, it was just like, we were partying really hard, and there was all kinds of stuff in my system. <laughs> but the, my stamina back then was was superhero like, so drugs and alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> just 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 a long roll of it too. But we it, where you get to this level of just like you're just kind of on this other plane. But um, but the sun was going down. You know, there was just like. There's like a gazillion people out in the audience and it was like everything just like fell into place. And we like, it wasn't, I wasn't slurring. I wasn't like, I wasn't fumbling. I was like, everything was like locked in. And we played this, yeah, pretty decent sounding show. And I was just like, like on another plane. It was, it was a, it was magic. And it's a good feeling too, because there's a lot of uncertainty going into it. It was like, can I handle? Am I gonna come out the other end of this? Or is is this just gonna be a disaster? Yeah. So it's there's like this heroic thing of just like walking off stage and then like and then like the encore, and you actually finish the encore. You're like, holy shit, we actually we pulled it off. <laughs> That's yeah. I'm gonna guess I was feeling pretty good. You know, the the last chord of like the the encore, I was probably feeling pretty good around that time. I think one of the best feelings, even though it's probably very bad for your hearing, is when you play a show and it's usually at a club or something where it's all the sound is bottled up. When people are screaming so loud for like an encore yeah. that all you hear is just like, <sighs> yeah. you know, and like the whole room is just like shaking, yeah. you know, and, you know, I think the, the daunting thing a lot of times for bands on most levels who aren't stars now is that you get a little of that and then it goes back mm. to the people kind of giving a shit yeah. or not showing up at all. Yeah. And it's like, how do you not question your decisions when you're like, wait, what, why, why don't they care anymore? Yeah. No, it just makes me think of all, like all these eighties metal bands who were just like, you know, they were like, gods <laughs> you know and now like you know just playing these shitty state fairs you know and like people like looking at their watches and yeah. stuff and like oh it's gotta i don't know it's the best job and the worst job in the world yeah i'm uh i'm still at odds with it all but uh i don't know i feel like i'm on the other end of it though like i feel like i feel like if i just kind of keep cruising at this real moderate modest level release something every now and then um, and, and just have enough projects in my lap to where I can keep the lights on and, you know, I don't have an extravagant life. Um, I'm fine with that, you know, just ride it out until, until I can tap into my retirement. 
Yeah, your pension. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this solo tour you're doing right now, you're playing, you know, piano, guitar, and you're you're sharing songs from your whole repertoire. Um, before we go into the song that you're gonna play, uh, which I'm very thrilled that you're gonna play, uh, yeah. saddest vacant lot in all the world from someday, which is what 2003. So, sounds about right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that song was not what I thought it was about. Elaborate a little bit if you can. Ooh, let's see. She's in the kitchen crying by the oven. It seems she really loved him. Oh, that's basically me being a drunk idiot who can't get his shit together. So he's breaking up with another girl because he's just like a basket case. Mm. And I'm just obsessed with work and uh i'd rather deal with non-reality i'd rather flourish in non-reality and make weird pretty things out of it than actually deal with somebody else's feelings Mm -hmm. and uh and uh yeah where do you think that girl is now uh with a way more stable uh guy (laughs) (laughs) and um living a wonderfully boring fruitful life that's in a way like uh very alluring to me (laughs) very envious very envious of this boring life that she's probably living right now but um yeah it ended it's good that it ended if you had not done music this long what do you think you would be doing in an alternate reality um hopefully one of the I had two things that I wanted to be. I wanted to either be a fireman or I wanted to be a park ranger. Those are the only things I remember ever wanting. Not a skating star? No. The reason that I am a skating star. (laughs) Not an X Games legend? (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) Uh, I remember... um, I remember the reason I wanted to be a fireman, though, is because of the whole, like, four days on, three days off, or or, <laughs> yeah. or vice versa. And it was, like, the idea of, like, having, like, multiple days off in a row was, like, really appealing to me. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> loves firemen, so it's, like, there's, like, this kind of, like, this low-rent sort of superhero element to it. But, and park ranger, you know, just being outside, obvious reasons. If there's one place in the mountains that you could take people, where would it be? Um, I am fairly obsessed with the Eastern Sierras, like around Mount Whitney, like Bishop, California, that area over there. It's like the east side of Yosemite. Mm-hmm. It's like, has everything, a lot of what Yosemite has to offer, which is like one-tenth of the crowds, mm. which is why I love it a lot over there. Mm. Did you see the Free Solo movie? The uh... I did, yeah. Yeah. Saw it a couple times. <laughs> that is, like, I actually felt my body like clamming up <laughs> and I don't really I love heights I don't I'm not like yeah, afraid of heights no, was... but I just was so like are we gonna watch this guy die during well, this well it's descent? also you know it was amazing filmmaking as well yeah like Jimmy Chin who's like no it's like they film. the way for them to make it digestible for like you know regular non-climbing people was like they did a really really good job that movie was something else I'll probably end up watching it like 10 more times in my life it's like cliffhanger literally is there a movie that you wish you could have done the soundtrack to Mm, that's a great question I don't know 
I'm still kind of fascinated by uh, um, I'm watching these online tutorials right now called Masterclass. It's mm. like ways to learn about mm -hmm. different, but I'm, I'm watching one with Danny Elfman right now and it's like super fascinating. It's, I'm kind of learning about, I've never really studied um, music and film and how it relates. Mm -hmm. I'm still, I'm still kind of in the dark about that whole mysterious process, but he's kind of, it's really fascinating listening to his take on it. And it's, and it's very easy for a dumbass like me to understand. And uh, I think I'll probably, I would love to do more stuff like that though. And I get just enough of it right now to where I think I'm learning slowly, which is kind of cool. All right, I'm gonna take us out with one creative exercise. And I had this thought that the, uh, f your focus on the smallest details and blowing them up into these sort of grand cinematic stories remind me a little bit of David Sedaris, the comedic writer who writes these very neurotic but hilarious stories of his family mm -hmm. and, and the sort of minutia of everyday life. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read this one passage and, and the first thing that comes to your mind from something in your life. Okay. okay. This woman would have really big teeth that she'd reveal every time she threw back her head to laugh at one of my many witticisms. Um, just how disgusting it is looking in people's mouths. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Okay, here's the next I don't one. like to see the inside of people's mouths. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> While working, I listened to the radio, a local AM station that broadcast old serials and comedy programs every Saturday. I enjoyed both suspense and the shadow, but when the life of Riley began, I found my mind beginning to wander. Yeah, it just reminds me too much of uh, making dinner. I cook. I cut a lot of vegetables, and I listen to. I have an old radio that's on my ref refrigerator, and that's just. Um, what is your go-to? What is your signature recipe? I just I, I grill a lot of vegetables, and they end up all mushy. I just kind of eat a lot of mushy grilled vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> Are you vegetarian? I'm mostly mostly. Yeah. I have no restrictions, but I I eat mostly pretty healthy. All right, last one. Yep. The bus from North Carolina to Oregon takes four days, which breaks down to roughly 75,000 hours if one is traveling without the aid of a strong animal tranquilizer. As soon as you said bus, that reminded me of being, I used to get shuttled back and forth. I used to take, I used to ride greyhounds a lot when I was a little kid, going, my parents divorced when I was five. So my mom was out trying to find herself and she would live in all these various places. And she, so I was always ending up on a greyhound, like driving like multiple, and I was like, and I kind of did the math, and I was probably like six or seven years old. It's like seems safe. Like people would not do that these days, <laughs> and I and I I still have like this image that I've fallen back on a lot of just this like, is like the mid seventies, the Greyhound bus driving away, my mom standing in the in the station just like waving, and like me sort of tearing up and like waving, a six or seven year old kid, and it's like, and I think this one's going to end up coming up in therapy. I just recently started <laughs> therapy within the last few months but um it seems so crazy to me that they would just like put me on a bus and like with all the creeps it's just like it's like greyhound it's like a nightmare it's like creep city so maybe it was 
more wholesome back then. <laughs> Did your mom ever find I don't herself? Think so. Huh? Did she ever find herself? No, no, no. She ended up, you know, living like fifty or sixty different places, and just had to move on to the next place because she just didn't like that one place. <laughs> but um. Did she ever listen to your music? No, her favorite thing now is to. I got her a laptop, and she has Wi-Fi. She's in her eighties. Laptop and Wi-Fi, and she looks up interviews about me, and, uh-huh. and she's just like, "I don't even know who this person is." <laughs> and I saw this thing on YouTube that you were doing. I'm just like, oh, "Mom, I don't want to talk about this." Like, <laughs> uh, like her connection to me is like looking up. Like I always try to keep. Uh, I don't know. It's it's just it's weird. She's gonna love this. <laughs> oh man, no, she's not getting this link. <laughs> link not allowed. Link not in bio. Well, I'm really glad that we could talk, and uh, you know, I'm a big fan of everything you do, and you know, it's important. I think people listen to your whole body of work. Wow, man, yeah. thanks. That means a lot. I really appreciate it.
There you have it, Jason Lytle, everybody. You can go to jasonlytle.com for his music. And you know what? Tour dates are rare, but sometimes they do pop up. I was able to see him at the Lodge Room in L.A. I had no idea who was going to come to this thing. It was packed on a Sunday night. He played solo piano with uh, some synth loops and some guitar, told stories, and had slideshows from his phone of him hiking in the mountains. It was super, super charming, and uh, I was really honored that he came and graced us with his presence. So please check him out if he's out there. And uh, his newest record, which came out in August, is called uh, Nylon and Juno, put out by Danger Bird Records. It is an instrumental cinematic exploration. There's a film that goes with it. So maybe you want to settle in with your favorite substance or uh, beverage of choice and just stare at the ceiling and drift away. It's a great way to do it. And uh, I really hope that Jason puts out a new Granddaddy album. Maybe if we all bug him, they'll do it. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, my band Dust Bowl Revival will have a new song out this Friday. It's called Runaway. And man, I can't wait for this new record to drop in January. We're starting to rehearse the new songs. It's a little bit scary because a lot of these songs came together in the studio and we have to relearn them from the ground up. It's sort of like learning how to walk and then running a marathon within the first week. But you know what? I will see you out there in January. We're starting at the Sinclair in Boston to release the record uh, the 29th of January and then going to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, Portland, Maine, and to New York and onward. So please look out for those record release dates. And uh, we'll be in California this weekend uh, playing at Morro Bay's The Siren Friday the 13th and the 14th up in Chico, California at Lost on Main, and finally near Santa Cruz at the Felton Music Hall on the 15th. Don't forget to listen to the other wonderful podcasts on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network, like The String or Hangin' and Sangin'. There's all sorts of wonderful things to check out. And uh, you know what? It's not just bluegrass at the Bluegrass Situation. We are bringing all sorts of roots music into people's ear holes. And you know what? Roots music maybe just means digging a little deeper. Life is too short for superficial music. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lubiton. See you on the trail.